Luke chapter 24. These last weeks we've been looking at some of the attributes of God. We're certainly not going to cover all of them. We've noticed that some of them are attributes that God, uh, that are true of God alone. Nothing or no one else in all creation has these attributes. And then there are some that are what we call communicable attributes, attributes that God shares with us as human beings as part of the image that he created within us. And even though we have some of these attributes, we don't have them perfectly like God because, because of our sin. The last couple of weeks, we looked at a couple of those communicable attributes. God is truth and God is spirit. And Jesus reminds us in, in uh, his conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria that, in fact, we are then called to worship God in spirit and in truth. God is truth. He is true in his actions. He is trustworthy and truthful in his word and in his promises. But he also wants us to be people of truth. We need to reflect God in our community as people of truth whose actions are true, whose words are trustworthy. And then also to worship him in truth, that is to worship him as he truly is and not some made-up image that we come up with. And we noted that God was spirit last week. That God is not confined, but he is an ongoing spirit. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more now this morning because the fact that God is spirit is linked closely with this next attribute that we'll look at, God's infinity. Now, when Jesus hits on the attributes of God, when Jesus teaches, he doesn't gather his disciples, have them all sit in, in uh, rows and, and gets at the lectern and he gives them a theology lesson. Jesus talks about theology where it affects them in their lives. His theology lessons are very practical. And so this morning I want to look at this particular attribute of God as Jesus shows us how it is very practical in our lives, how it makes a difference in our lives. And so, it's, uh, it's one of the most confusing times for Jesus' disciples here in Luke 24. Jesus has been raised from the dead. They should be overjoyed, and there's certainly some joy there, but it's, it's mingled with this whole confusion. What's going on? They, they thought he was going to stay with them, and now they've heard some some stories that he's not in his tomb, but they haven't seen him. We don't know where he is. It's very confusing. And so, in Luke 24, we have this passage where a couple of the disciples of Jesus, uh, probably ones that gathered to him later because they live around the Jerusalem area rather than Galilee, where a couple of the disciples of Jesus now come, uh, have pretty much had it with Jerusalem, and they're heading back home to Emmaus. So we pick up our reading at verse 13 of Luke 24. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? 
They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are! How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken! Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Will he talk with us on the road and open the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he led, led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Would you join me in prayer before we look at this passage? Holy Spirit, as you worked and continue to work, but as you work to allow Luke to record this event perfectly and for our benefit, now we pray that you would continue to inspire this word to us. Help us to know what we need to learn from it. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. During the time of Christmas, we often talk about names of Jesus, and one of the names that stands out to us and we talk about quite often is the name Emmanuel. It's a name that's given to Jesus from a prophecy in the Old Testament in the Christmas story, and, and yet it's also a name that resonates with us because it means God with us. God with us. But how can God be with all of us at the same time? You know, some people love to sing the song, In the Garden, which expresses the sentiment, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. But how can we all sing that at the same time? Especially when we're in all different places. It's baffling. How does, certainly there are, there are people all over in different countries today praying. But how does God hear them all? Does he have some heavenly prayer switchboard? Is there a, a divine CNN with angel reporters in every city around the globe or every house? How can anyone have the audacity to claim God's personal presence with them? Does that mean they're pulling God away from important work in China or the Middle East? A few, a few weeks ago, as we started this series, we talked about God being self-existent. That, that means that he's the source of our life, our actions, and our being. In him we live and move and have our being. But what good is this if God is not present with us? And how can he be present with all of us? Well, these questions that we've been asking, ranging from the ridiculous to the sublime, all revolve around a crucial attribute of God we call his infinity. His infinity. The Bible reveals to us that God is an infinite spirit. So we looked at spirit last time, but the two are really closely meshed. Now, infinity, I suppose, is not necessarily a, a terribly hard thing to illustrate. I've seen teachers do it. You take, a, you take a piece of chalk in the old days when we had chalkboards, and uh, you start at one point in the room, and you start going around all the room and come all the way back to the original point on the chalkboard, and then you just keep on going, and it just keeps on going because a circle or a square or a continuous line is a symbol of infinity. But do we really grasp anything from that? You know, there's a sense in which we're, we often are describing God by saying what God is not. What God is not. You know, oftentimes we just say, well, I can't really say what, who God is in, in these different things, but I can tell you what he's not. And so we often describe God by what he's not. And God is not finite. Finite beings have limitations. I can't be in Michigan and, and New York and Seattle all at the same time. We're limited spatially. How often in our busy schedules don't we say in exasperation, I can't be three places at once. Finite beings have boundaries and borders and limits. But God has no such limits. There is no place where God is not present and that's an aspect of infinity we call his omnipresence. 
His omnipresence, that he is everywhere present. We heard it described in in the prayer this morning when we were reading from Psalm 139 where David notes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And it's not just David that expresses this. God himself through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 23 says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places that I cannot see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God fills the world. What does that look like? Does that mean parts of God's body are are in different parts of the world? Does it mean that God's feet are in Grand Rapids? His eyes are watching our children in in Texas or Washington, Oklahoma or Georgia? His hands working on problems in the Middle East? Need we settle for a piece of God? No, wherever God is, He is fully present, which speaks of another aspect of His infinity, and that is God's immensity. Each and every one of us can have God's undivided attention. So that's theology. But as I've mentioned before, theology means absolutely nothing to us until it affects our lives, until it's personalized. Jesus never just sat down and taught theology classes, but he did teach theology, pragmatic or practical theology. That which was practical to his disciples' lives at that particular moment. He spoke to needs where rubber hits the road. And as one person said, skid marks where rubber hits the road are always good theology. So Jesus' explanation of God's infinity doesn't come in a theological discourse. It it comes in the form of promises. So let's look at a few of those. In John 14, when Jesus is about to, uh, to head to the cross the next day, he's with his disciples in the upper room, and he's explained to them that he's asked to go, and they're very disturbed, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Then he goes on a little later and says, in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So Jesus says he's going to leave them, but he's not really going to leave them. They won't be orphaned by their master. He sends the Spirit. And through the Spirit, he will be present. The world won't see him physically, but the disciples will be able to see him with the eyes of faith, for he will live with them and live within them. And then a little later on in chapter 16 of John, verse 7, he says, but very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So to terrify disciples, Jesus says, It's actually to your advantage that I leave you. How is that to their advantage? 
Well, while Jesus remained in human form, he had self-imposed limits, boundaries of finiteness that he took upon himself when he came in a human body. Once he returns to heaven and, and sends back his spirit, he takes on a new form, not confined to the limits of finiteness, so he can be everywhere present. He can be with us all at once through the spirit. And not only he can be with all of us at once, but he, can all, he will also be with us forever, eternally. In Matthew 28, 20, before he ascends into heaven, he gives them the greatest promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, I'll be with you to the very end. I'll be with you until I return. He promises even in his apparent absence to be their leader and their strength on this adventure that he calls them on. Now, having heard these promises and, and having known them, even then they just went through this gut-wrenching time of the crucifixion of Jesus. So imagine the dilemma the disciples face when the rubber really did hit the road. In the second part of Luke 24, we find these disciples heading home to Emmaus. Jesus had died, and even though the tomb was empty and rumors of resurrection abounded, they hadn't seen him. He had promised not to leave them as orphans, but they sure felt like orphans. How could they continue this adventure without him? That seemed to be the mood of Cleopas and the unnamed disciple with him. It was likely a similar mood in the upper room where the others were praying. And then something happened. Cleopas and his buddy were joined in their walk by a man who seemed out of touch with all the events happening in Jerusalem. But as he walks with them and he talks with them, he begins to reveal a prophetic perspective on these events. And they felt a strange churning inside. Didn't our hearts burn within us? They were ready to chalk it up to heartburn and reach for the maylocks and toms when he revealed himself. It was Jesus. Then in the upper room where the disciples were praying like their lives depended on it, Cleopas and his friend told their story and suddenly the ghost-like presence of Jesus appeared in the room, but he wasn't a ghost. He was real. He was touchable. He spoke the truth of the scriptures and told them the game plan. And when he left, they were overjoyed rather than frightened. Now, I suppose Jesus could have gone from the empty tomb straight to heaven. And certainly his appearances helped prove his resurrection, but not to everybody. Most, a lot of people in that day still didn't believe it. But more than that, I think Jesus' appearances reminded his disciples of his continued presence with them. Maybe even gave them a form for thinking about his presence. Think about it. Could Cleopas and his buddy ever walk the Emmaus Road again without thinking of Jesus walking beside them? Could the disciples ever gather for prayer without thinking of Jesus in their midst? Do you think the disciples ever encountered heartburn again and chalked it up to more than indigestion? I trust that there have been times in your life when you felt the presence of God in a special way. God, you felt God very near you. Your heart burned within you. 
Those special times give us a form, a reminder that Jesus is always with us. He walks with us and he talks with us and he tells us we are his own. And as we adventure in the Christian life, there is no better feeling and promise and theological doctrine than an ever-present Lord who walks beside us. Would you pray with me? Lord, give us spiritual heartburn as we walk this adventure called the Christian life. Help us to hear your footsteps as you walk with us and your voice as you talk with us. And help us to feel your loving arm around our shoulders as you tell us that we are your own. Amen. Let's conclude with that song I referenced in the message. Song, In the Garden, which again is a, just a poetic way of talking about Jesus' presence with us and what that presence looks like, what it feels like as we go, uh, as we're sitting maybe in a hospital room or as we're waiting to hear uh, about someone that we care about who's, who's terribly ill. Or as we're dealing with frustrations at school, are we going to be in person or are we going to be online? What are we going to do? As we deal with all of these different things, it's a good reminder for us to remember that Jesus is with us. He walks with us. He talks with us. And he tells us that we are his own. Would you stand as we sing the three stanzas together?